We say good morning again. Good morning. It is certainly a pleasure to be here. It is summertime. I think it's officially summertime, no matter what. I think they used to say June 21st, huh? Well, uh, from winter to summer. <laughs> we had a couple of days of spring, that's right. Thank you, Lord, right? <laughs> People uh, often have difficulties accepting uh, different things, uh, new things, especially people who are offering different things. And when someone marches to a different drummer, um, people are asked, uh, have to ask, they're forced to ask questions, you know, uh, about them and, and even ourselves we have to ask if that be the case. Uh, Jesus had an outreach to sinners that was a different way. It was very new as he went to the sinners as we've been seeing. And we've been in chapter 5 of Luke. And in chapter 5, we've seen the story of the leper who is a very good picture of a sinner, of sinful mankind. And then also, we also see in Luke 5, after the leper was cleansed, a paralytic who was healed. Well, a paralytic was actually hopeless and another good picture of what it is to be in sin. Not being a paralytic, but it shows the state of man in his sin. So the leper, the paralytic, we continue on through Luke 5 and we looked last week at a guy by the name of Levi, better known as Matthew. And, of course, he turns out to be an apostle. Jesus chose him. But what was he as Jesus chose him at that time? What did he do for a living? He was a tax collector. And we went into length describing what the meaning of a tax collector was to the Jewish people, especially the um, Pharisees. They called them sinners, really. And they were good pictures of sinners. Anybody you look at is a good picture of a sinner. That's what uh, we are by nature. We need somebody to come along because we were without hope. And we need somebody like a Savior. And uh, of course, He is unique, isn't He? Jesus is being introduced all the way up to this point as one who is unique he is special. He is completely different than anybody that has ever come and taught the Word of God. He is God. Jesus is Savior. He is God. And uh, He alone is the one who saves. And so we've seen three cases so far. And we see along with those cases, people who do not like what Jesus is saying and doing. And when he does that, as he does these miracles, of course, they cannot be debated. They're real. They actually happen. And as he preaches the Word of God, he performs miracles. He preaches the Word of God with absolute authority like nobody else had. He was doing a new thing. And it is out with the old and in with the new. Now granted, that the old here is the old system of man-made Judaism. It's all the traditions that were brought in uh, with the Word of God. There was a change being made. 
And it was announced in the past, all through the Old Testament, through the prophecies, we see of this One who is going to do that. And of course we think of the New Covenant. Um, God had made a promise. He said this in His Word, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. A new covenant. There was an old covenant, but the new covenant comes right into play off the heels of the old covenant. Now the old covenant we think of as the law. It's what God gave. It's important. It's very valuable. It's not that it's done away with. Jesus comes to fulfill that old covenant and now announces this new covenant which had already been told it will happen. It is Him that is bringing this new covenant. It is severely resisted by the leaders as we have seen. And and through this chapter 5, we know that um, as far as dealing with the paralytic, the leaders um, really were asking whenever Jesus had said, your sins are forgiven, they said, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They just said it. It's only Christ Himself, but they had a question, but they didn't want the kind of answer that He had. And then when Matthew was called, um, we know that He invited sinners to His table along with Jesus. And so what was their next question? The question is this, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Now they addressed that to the disciples at the time. But they knew that it would get to Jesus. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're the same thing. What are you eating with that riffraff? What are you doing around them? So they resisted this. Jesus challenges the traditional, doesn't He? And the tradition had definitely been set in place. The Old Testament pointed to the time of the Messiah. This is the new thing that Jesus is doing, what it is pointing to. But they had added so many things to what religion was, uh, this Judaism that they had accomplished in their own eyes. Uh, So they question Jesus, and they see that He's quite different than them. He's not going along with the rules that they set. He's not doing what they did. He's not doing their traditions. And so Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to illustrate what is happening? The kingdom is here. It's Christ. Kingdom that had always been promised. And it's replacing the old system that they had. And what it's saying is that the gospel cannot mix with Judaism. Cannot mix with legalism, Pharisaism, other religions for that matter. All religions of the world, Christianity, the gospel, cannot mix with anything else. That means that we believe what Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through Christ. No matter what all those other religions might say and how much they might talk about love, the thing is is that they're all absolutely incompatible with the Gospel any kind of beliefs that go outside of Christianity and the truth of the Word of God is false. It's a lie. And that's what Jesus is doing as He continues on in His uh, ministry. 
let's um, grab our Bibles and let's stand. And let's see what Jesus has to say about fasting and other such things. And they said to Him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. Disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And He was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts on an old garment. Otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise a new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. No one after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your truth. The truth of the Word of God. Thankfully, Lord, we can go to here and we get absolutes. And we get it straight from the mouth of God. The very Word of God has been written. It's been given to us. Thank You that we can come here and pronounce it, to proclaim it, to preach it, to believe it, to be empowered by Your Spirit to be able to believe it, to understand some deep things of who You are as we learn more and more about the very glory of God and the Gospel of the Kingdom and all its glory. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen. To be seated. We have the question this morning. Then we have the answer by Jesus. And then He gets the depth of that by using parables. So that's what we're going to do with this section as we move on through Luke. This will complete Luke 5. And we're seeing further and further how Jesus works in His ministry. And it's certainly different than the religious people of the day, isn't it? As He gives the truth. And so it starts off with, and they. We just come in here and we break it down, right? Who's the they? Well, it could be a little complicated. It's really not. But when we look at the other Gospels, we'll see something that looks like Uh, It could be saying something different, but that's not it. We know it can't be. So we'll put it together. They, so far, would take us back to the Pharisees and scribes because we're in context as we read along. By the way, um, this is going on in order just like Matthew and Mark. So the context is still the same. They don't always do that in chronological order or in the same order, but uh, when they do, in this case, it is pretty easy to interpret. It helps us anyway. Um, it says that in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at His disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Uh, we don't know if this is the exact time as that, with it, or maybe it's later, but... 
uh, in this context, I think that they, to start off with, would be, it's the Pharisees, the scribes, right? They said to Him, they're questioning Him, the, the disciples of John, remember John the Baptist? Now this is interesting. The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So uh, I think in, in uh, right there we get the antagonist here as in the prior passages, they ask another question. So they already ask, as we said earlier, uh, back with the, that paralytic, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And they're saying, who is this man who speaks, speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus answered them. Uh, then they ask another question as far as uh, Levi, as we said. And here they are asking again. Now, if we go to uh, Matthew 9.14. And so here's the same Matthew who is Levi who writes a parallel gospel. Um, Matthew 9 verse 14. And right after the disciples and Jesus were eating with sinners at uh, Matthew's house, tax collector and sinners were there, then the disciples of John came to Him asking, now you notice this time, disciples of John, which are included in Luke, but Matthew just says the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, they're saying one thing. They're in all in this, but the Pharisees are there with them. And it says we, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And then we'll get in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. A little bit different rendering, but it all comes together. We get the full idea here. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came, they came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So who do you think it is? Who's the they? It's the Pharisees, scribes, and it's John's disciples. They're coming there. Even John's disciples? We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, this is typical of a synoptic gospel. They say basically the same thing. Sometimes one might include another and say, okay, what he didn't say. Another one comes along and says, well, here's uh, also what was happening. So they didn't collude together as they wrote the gospels, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they put down what was best for them to write down and they put it together and they're not contradicting, are they? They're both saying this as they come. Yeah, what's the deal? What about this? One of them makes the question, and then another one says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't you don't fast like we do." So John's disciples actually are with the Pharisees here. Yeah, it's kind of they they kind of gotten together a little bit. It's kind of interesting. Luke emphasizes the Pharisees. Matthew emphasizes the disciples of John posing the question. Mark says both pose the question, and they're all right. Uh, but it does seem like they're hanging out. There's patterns of fasting and prayer that, uh, of course, the Pharisees had done. Um, it's like, hey, hey, you're ignoring. You're ignoring the, the kind of praying that we do, the fasting and, and the almsgiving. I mean, this is an outrage, Jesus. It, it, it's in that sense. You know, don't you understand? You're violating all the rules here. You're not doing what we do. Can you imagine Jesus doing what other people did? 
This is our religion. She kind of liked what they're saying, and it was. It had come into that. It wasn't so biblical, even though they were very, the Pharisees actually were very conservative, very fundamental. They believed, uh, in quotes, the Word of God, but we see that they take it in a different way. Are we to accept you as a spokesman of God and yet you don't even fast like we do? And and even John's disciples do? John the Baptist? So, you know, what they did, they cranked up, cranked up their religion quite a few notches, John's disciples did. As they had come into conviction of sin, they followed John the Baptist. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they repent. They look to the Messiah. They can't wait till He comes. And by the way, John the Baptist, where do you think he is right now? He's in prison, right? Herod had locked him up. And so you have the disciples out there and, and it would make sense to get with the religious elite. They, they knew that these guys were leaders in the uh, Jewish world, Christia, uh, uh, Judaism. So they get together. It's like John's disciples, Pharisees, they kind of get together and they start saying, this Jesus is quite an interesting person. He really does a lot of things differently than we do. What do you what do you think? Well, he had eaten a meal with the sinners and the tax collectors, right? Well, that's not the only thing that's bothering them. And there he's doing unusual practices, and of course they were pious. Piety can actually be a good word, especially when you see it in the terms of Puritans, the way that they used piety. That's good. I mean, that's a, that's a good religion. Religion was always a good word, and it got distorted. Now you say religion, what do you think of? Uh, some, either some kind of um, legalism, not heartfelt. But actually, that's a good word, but it's been distorted, so we kind of have to shift gears when we say that. And... Uh, they, they realize that there are quite a few things that's really bothering them. Fasting, prayer, and did you know this was a rich heritage in Judaism? It's a highly regarded, a tremendous act of worship it is. And so um, this is the, the fasting aspect. And if you don't fast like they do, then you're just not up to par. And so that's what they're questioning. Jesus and and his disciples. There was one fast commanded in the Old Testament. One fast that was really commanded. And that's found in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, 29 to 31. That's really the day of atonement. And they were commanded to do that. Hey, see you guys and be praying as he gives the message out there today in the hundred degree heat. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Water. <laughs> Speaking of water. Mm. Let's go to uh, Leviticus 
Leviticus 16, 29-31. This shall be a permanent statute for you. Now, Leviticus is part of the law, right? In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute, the Day of Atonement. That's one of the seven feasts that was given to them. And this is the day that they were certainly commanded. Never in Scripture do we see other days where they... Uh, are to do that on an annual basis. Now there are volunteer fasts that you'll see in the Old Testament. There's a four-day fast commemorating the fall of Jerusalem, Jerusalem as they remember that. Find that in Zechariah. Fast would be an act of um, uh, penitence where one is truly sorry for their sins. Fasting can also be at a time of mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G morning in your fast. Um, But the fast that they had had nothing to do with the heart. It was fast that just made you look like you were doing something. Made you feel like you were doing something. You see, the Jews were really wanting to do things, but it wasn't the way that God wanted them to do things. And it's always in the heart. You love the Lord with all your heart. Right? Of course, obedience does come through in this, but we're saying here what they did was just a show. Um, They would do it every Monday and Thursday. That was a schedule that they would keep week after week after week after year after year after year. They would do Mondays and Thursdays fasting. They would wear their sackcloth and ashes and people would say, oh, look how holy they are. And they would get really kind of um, uh, encouraged by the way that people would react to that. It, it was um, quite a show. They invented this routine. It was never in Scripture. So they were hypocrites. They really were actors. That's what a hypocrite is, to act out something you really are not. They were acting out their holiness and to be real truthful to you, to God, this is despicable. People who can dress up in holy clothes and have holy hats and whatever, you know. It, I mean, you see it in different religions and, of course, even in, uh, you know, was it Buddhism? You get some kind of a, a man surrounded by flowers and he's sitting there with his legs crossed, you know, doing some kind of yoga exercise and. You know, you go on and on with all the religions. But it's really to be seen by men. God does not approve of this kind of act at all. This ritual prayer, the ritual fasting, the ritual of uh, almsgiving, all of those things are good. We're not saying they're, all, they're bad, but we have to see them in the light of Scripture and what Jesus is going to say. So they had three religious expressions prayer, alms, and fasting. And that's how they showed to the public how religious they were. And so they go around parading their so-called godliness to the people. You can see this as Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 6. 
You know the Sermon on the Mount? By the way, and Luke will be getting into that shortly. In Matthew 6, we'll see a few, few verses in this chapter dealing with this outward religion. It's awful easy to get into an outward mode of religion because it makes you feel like you're doing something. This is how I'm going to please God. has nothing to do with grace. Verse 1, Beware. This is right in the Sermon on the Mount, people. A lot of people adore the Sermon on the Mount. People outside of Christianity love the Sermon on the Mount. If they'd only see what it's saying. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Wow. Boy, that's a warning, isn't it? Verse 5, When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. That's what they were doing. Standing, praying in the synagogues where all would see them. Their prayers would be pretty loud. They would be saying them out loud how holy they were to the people. Verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Long flowing words, lots of words, lots of speaking in the prayers that could go on for hours. Lots of minutes. And he says, do not be like them. He says, here's how I want you to pray. And everybody knows that. Our Father who art in heaven. Here's how we pray. Here's the model that I'm going to give you how to pray. By the way, just a little throw in here. What does he start off with? Our Father. Boy, that had to really get the attention of the people. But he's teaching the disciples here. They're going, what? Our Father. You know, the Jews didn't see that that was a good thing to do. They never addressed Him as Father. And here He says, here's how I want you to pray. I want you to start off with our Father. Now He's in heaven and He is holy, but He's our Father. That's good as we go to Him in prayer, isn't it? Knowing our relationship with Him, that's what we're doing on the Tuesday nights as we've been talking about having communion, having a relationship with the Father. Of course, next Next time it will be with the Son. So you get uh, the idea here, there, Godliness. Galatians talks about the religion, the Judaizers and such. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, you get this outwardness again taught here. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. I think that's a good phrase there. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. There was a, there's what the Judaizers did. You have to be circumcised to be really a believer. So anyway, but he, he says there, uh, they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. That's the thought. That's what the Pharisees did. So we move to the second one now. We've we've seen the question, haven't we? 
uh, in Luke 5, they make the question, and I don't think it's a question that they need to be informed. They're really trying to trap them. What's your problem? Why, you're not like us. There's something wrong with you. You're doing something that you're, you're omitting something. We've got it right. You don't have it. That's what they're saying to Jesus. Simple answer is this. Now is not the time to be fasting. Now is the time for celebrating. Hmm. I kind of like that. No fasting at a wedding. We'll read uh, what Jesus says here in His answer. Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom was with them, can you? Why at a wedding do they why would they fast? They rejoice, don't they? They celebrate. He says, Look, you don't fast at a wedding, do you? Well, of course they didn't. Wedding is a celebration. Uh, you have the bridegroom, and of course the, the attendants are the best friends. And matter of fact, they would help plan out the wedding. The attendants of the bridegroom would be rejoicing. They wouldn't be fasting. This is something that is a good thing. Can you imagine being the disciples of Jesus and celebrating every day? It's really what it was. It was a time of uh, a joy. It's a joyous occasion to be around Jesus. Can you imagine this? Being with Him every day, knowing that your sins are forgiven, knowing that what He is doing in this ministry is joy, it's fulfillment. This is what it's about. So, you know, they were the poor, they were the prisoners, they were the blind... They were the oppressed. They had been released from all of that as they have this freedom in Christ. Can you imagine being in that? What were they seeing every day? They were seeing His power. They were seeing these great miracles. They were hearing the Word of God taught like they had never heard before. It was incredible. And at this time, wouldn't you think that fasting would be ridiculous? Jesus is right here with us. He's the bridegroom. So fasting is absolutely out of place. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And so it is here. There's a time for everything. There's a time for rejoicing and that's what they were doing. There's a time here that fasting is appropriate. That can be. And there, there can be times when you're seeking out the Lord's wisdom in something and you want to fast. That's okay. You don't have to go on the street corners and tell everybody you're doing it. It's between you and, and the Lord, right? It's, it could, so it's a good thing. We're not saying it's a bad thing. But would you do that at a wedding? You know, they have all the, the food. The feast is tremendous. You say, oh, I've got to fast today. Well, no, you can't do that. You're to rejoice with everybody else. You know, don't bring everybody down by your your fasting. Well, it's a time of devoting time to God. Well, the disciples were with Jesus constantly. They were devoting everything to Him at that time, weren't they? They don't need to fast. 
you know, it can be a time, your fasting can be a time that you have in prayer with God. Uh, and it can be a very rewarding thing. The motive is, is crucial though. It, it comes from the heart. Why are you doing this? John the Baptist and his disciples, I actually think that they probably fasted out of proper motives. You know, they, they were taught about repentance and forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of God by John the Baptist. They didn't hear everything that, that Jesus then would pick up and, and further in their uh, journey. Um, but it's, you know, so I, I would put them with their motive different than the Pharisees. Although they want to take their religiosity up a few notches, you know, they want to grow. They can't wait till the Messiah comes. Now, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there might have been some followers that came and started following John the Baptist after Jesus had been there too. So, you know, maybe they don't recognize the Messiah here. And a lot of John's disciples did not follow the Messiah. Doesn't mean they didn't become believers, but uh, what happened to them? Anyway. I think it's interesting that Jesus would compare Himself to a bridegroom. You got to like that story, that, that picture there. You know, at the time of a wedding, He uses that illustration there. Uh, his presence marks the beginning of a new era. When when people get married, when they have a wedding, it's a new era, isn't it? It's now different. Things change drastically at a wedding, a marriage. At least they should. If they don't, then somebody's in trouble. Because now they're committed to each other and the, the way they're, they're, their lives that they live, right? So you can see right here that this is something that has changed now. And it's like Jesus says, as long as I'm around here, we are going to rejoice. This is the time of the bridegroom and the bridegroomsman. So it's it's uh, this is a good thing. And he says, when I'm gone, then the disciples will fast. Yeah, well, you know, when he dies, they're going to miss him, aren't they? And that's the idea. I'm the one that brings this world joy. Jesus is the one who brings true joy. And as long as I'm around here, we're going to bring forth joy. We're going to release the captives. We're going to set the captives free. Right? And that's kind of the idea. Now, the, the, you know, when you think of this bridegroom here saying that, it makes you also think of the imagery that is put in the Old Testament. Uh, marriage of Israel to God. And you see that picture several times. It's a great picture. He marries Israel. So God had a relationship with His people and He puts something into their thoughts that they can understand. And uh, of course, Old Testament, later Judaism, they, they have to see that, that idea. I'll go back to Isaiah 54 for a moment. You see this quite often, but... Here we see it in Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6. He says, For your husband, Israel, is your maker. 
says it right out there. Your husband is your maker. It's that kind of relationship we have. Whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. My, He's the maker. He's the Lord of hosts. He's a Redeemer. He's the Holy One of Israel. But you can learn a lot just by the names of God. I think they get the idea, right? Who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. So there is an illustration there of the husband and the wife being Israel. In chapter 62, verse 4 and 5, It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her, and your land married. Look at this. For the Lord delights in you, and to Him your land will be married For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Elsewhere, He will sing over us. I think we did this verse back a couple of weeks ago in the Tuesday night study. This is the kind of thing we're talking about in His rejoicing over us. How can we have communion if He doesn't stoop down and He just lays out all of His love and mercy and grace to us? Look at that. That is beautiful, isn't it? So your God will rejoice over you. That kind of relationship. We could go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. You know the story in Hosea and Ezra. What a picture. God is really good in allowing them to see this is a deep relationship that He has. I want to know you. It's an intimate relationship that God wants with us. This is eternal life that they may know Thee. Jesus said that to the Father about us, the disciples, us, the church, to know Him. To know Him intimately. A relationship. No other religions have a relationship. And of course you can think of Muslim religion. That's not a relationship whatsoever. It is all about doing. It's all works. Matter of fact, all religions besides Christianity, all of them are about works. They're works-based righteousness. So it's either saved by grace, by what Jesus did on the cross, or it's saved by works. And no works will get you there, God tells us. All the other religions are wrong, they're false. And ultimately they come from Satan himself. So aren't you very blessed to know what you're reading is not just going through some formality and whatever other religions are out there, they're doing their thing, but we're all saying the same thing. We're going to the same place. And that is a lie. And it's sad. The New Testament uses the imagery of the Messiah as the bridegroom. Now we looked in the Old Testament, saw a few scriptures there. 
Matthew 22, 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. It's it's like he's calling his bride. It's the parable of the marriage feast is what this is. It's beautiful. By the way, Christians, by the way, church, we wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can't wait. <laughs> but we'll have to wait. But isn't that, isn't that a great hope? Um, Luke 12, 35 and 36. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table when come up and wait on them. This is the one who's expectant by the way, to have your lamps lit, be ready, looking for the return of Christ, looking for the bridegroom, we're the bride, we're waiting for Him. And of course, the um, the Jews had a custom, the, of course the bridegroom would go off, build the house uh, with extra rooms to the Father's house, uh, often that's the way it would be. Uh, the son of the Father who had the house Son wouldn't know when that would be. He would have to build on to that, and then his father would say, Okay, now go. He might like to just put up a little shanty there and just go and he says, Not ready yet. We've got to build this, you know, something like a, a mansion, you know. Anyway, when the bridegroom went for his bride, she didn't know when he would come. But what's the point of this right here? Be ready. He could come any moment. Be ready. Be ready. Anticipate. Because that's the fulfillment. We wait. We're here. This is real life. But there's something better. Something better. What an image that is put there. And of course, the great Ephesians 5. How could you miss that on Ephesians 5? I'm going to read the whole passages. I'd like to. Boy, I skip a lot of verses if you have that outline. By the way, my apology for the bosons this morning. My printer went, or copier just went crazy last night. The first one that I made was okay. And the next one had a little bleed on it. And the next thing, it started getting more crooked, and I played with it. And I kept playing with it. And you can see, as a result of that, you don't really have a very good bulletin. Sorry, it, it was getting later on and I was thinking, you know, how could I do this? We have a copier here, but oh well. <laughs> At any rate, Ephesians 5. Husbands, verse 20, um, well, 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, 
So also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What a picture, right? Of course, it works in the... the uh, relationship between husband and wife and then he extends it on out and what this is really about of course uh, it's Christ and the church what an image there that he gives what a relationship I think of Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 speaking of the return of Christ let us Rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. You like that? We're getting made ready. He's sanctifying us right now by the Word of God. One of these days we'll be holy and blameless when we come before Him with glorified bodies. And we'll see Him as He is. There's the bridegroom. Chapter 21, verse 2. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Made ready. That New Jerusalem was made ready just like a bride is made ready for her husband. Adorned. My disciples are going to be feasting and rejoicing. Yeah, go ahead and fast all you want, but we're going to rejoice here. I like the rejoicing, don't you? Not that fasting doesn't have its place, but do you see what Jesus is saying? And of course, then we go back to our Luke and He does finish it out. As... 35 says, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. The bridegroom will be taken away. Be taken away. This is a prophecy he's given here. This is like the first time in Luke that he's mentioning that he's going to have to leave here. He's here, but he's not here in his body for the rest of their lives. So this is a rejection. This is the first hint of a rejection. What are they going to do? They're going to take Him away. You know what that means. There will definitely be a need of reflection and fasting. I wonder what Peter did. Well, he sure reflected on it all, didn't he? As he had denied the Lord... You know what? Jesus doesn't regulate fasting here. He doesn't organize it. doesn't legislate it. doesn't say anything about it. He does say that, yeah, there is a time for that. There's a time for celebration. 
when you would go to a wedding of the Jews, it would last seven days to much longer. I kid you not. It was an important time. They would feast and celebrate those first few days, however long it it went. And they would not fast during that time because they would wait to the culmination of the wedding. We call it the chutzpah. I'll leave it at that. But there would be you have this wedding ceremony and such. It's building up all that time. It's a you know we usually have the feast and everything, the food after the wedding. They'd have this whole time period and be part of the wedding. And he says, we're going to rejoice here, but there will be a time of fast because the bridegroom is going to be snatched out of the celebration. That's what it means in the Greek there. He will be taken away. He'll be snatched away. He will be arrested, taken in as somebody who blasphemed, claiming to be God, which he did. He's taken as a prisoner and is executed on the cross. But praise the Lord that he was executed on the cross because that's the only way that our sins can be forgiven. But man is held responsible even though it's God's plan. (laughs) Figure that one out, right? The Holy Spirit here wants us to understand that Judaism and all other religions that do not have Christ, they can be at their most devout level, do the greatest things, Take a week off church on Sunday and go plant a tree. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Some, a lot of churches in town just took a week off from worshiping, and I doubt if that many people really came that week, but they went out to plant trees. I cannot see where that fits. <laughs> But that's being devout. Maybe it's taking care of the people and showing the community that we care. But we could do that Monday, couldn't we? Or even Sunday afternoon. Let's worship first, right? Because that's it's a divine appointment. I say this every week, you know what I'm saying? It's a divine appointment to meet our Lord together with His people on this day. I won't make this a legalistic day. If we couldn't meet on Sundays, then we could do it Monday, you know, but... Um, it works out really good for us that way because people are off work that day usually for the most part. Uh, they can be the most devout as they possibly can. But you know what? They're completely out of sync with the Gospel. It doesn't matter how many works that they do and they can outdo us. If they don't have Christ, their works are as filthy rags. They do not please God. They do not recognize the Messiah. That's a stench. It's not giving glory to God. It doesn't recognize that the bridegroom is here. So that is how serious Jesus took their parading of outward religion. The Gospel is unique. It is incompatible with all other religions. And boy, I'll tell you what, if you said this out in public, 
I would have to wonder how many people would be highly offended at you and try to correct you for making a statement such as that, that Jesus is the only way. It might just cart you off. (laughs) That's sad, but that's true. That was the way it was back then too, wasn't it? When He spoke truth, the religious people didn't want it. Jesus didn't stop there. That was good enough, but He makes it very clear. And He says, let me draw you a picture here. He gives an illustration, actually gives three. He makes it clear without any kind of muddiness at all, getting on a level that a baby can understand. Now that's God. Communication that we have. Can you imagine the God kind of language that's going on? You know, it's better than all of our the king's English. <laughs> However, the language, the communication that they have. But he gets on our level. He gives a human language so that we can understand him, to know him, because that's what it's about. So he, Jesus liked to use parables, parabole, to throw alongside. That's the idea. Throw alongside. He says, okay, there's something new here. God has this plan. This is a new way of ordering spiritual life from the way that you have seen it here. Three pictures. They're distinct from um, the way that it had been viewed as. He is ushering in a new day. Yes, there is the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant makes it even more distinct. Now it's come to truth in the person of Christ. Judaism was an encumbrance. It was full of man-made traditions. And Jesus has to cut away at these as He's pointing to a new day. He's cutting. He's been cutting all the way through Luke 5. When we go on to Luke 6, He's going to continue to keep cutting away at this man-made religion. Traditions. He offers the wine of joy, the gospel joy. Now he uses this illustration. He tells this parable. The first one is, No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he'll both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Makes sense, doesn't it? And he really probably didn't really have to explain that, but let's say you go out to a store, you buy a brand new shirt. Somebody has an old shirt that's been ripped up. They've been out in the roses and trying to pick those those old roses off one like that and they're they're getting torn up and everything. And they tear up a pretty good piece in their old shirt that they were wearing, and you say, Oh, well listen, I'll take this new shirt, I'll tear out a big hole in it to cover that right there. Now what you've done, you've ruined the new shirt. And what's it going to do for the old shirt? Well, uh, what it uh, what it does is that you can put it on there, but then it's like it's washed, and all of a sudden it, it starts coming out, and and you have uh, everything being ripped. Um, it, I think Matthew and Mark call that uh, new piece an unshrunk piece. 
as soon as you wash it, the new piece shrinks and just rips the threads out. Then you've got a hole all over again. So now, not only do you have a hole in the old, but you've ripped up the new one. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know what He's saying? You can't patch the Gospel into Judaism. Now, a lot of people tried to do that later on. That's why you have the book of Galatians, for instance. Can you imagine trying just mingling the two together? Even the things that God had given which were good, it was just pointing to the cross. All the sacrifices that they did, the, the temple and you know, everything that went with the ceremonies, we don't do that anymore. How would you like to have Christianity and they do all that stuff? It doesn't really mean anything because now it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. You can't patch the Gospel into Judaism. Judaism is an old garment. He's saying, don't you see there's something new? <laughs> I'm not going to do your traditions that you do. They're absolutely worthless. Judaism is a worn out garment. I'm going to replace it. That's the idea. They had a self-righteous system. And that's really what he's saying. The old garment isn't necessarily the Old Testament or the law, but it's their Judaism. He's not talking about God's holy law, which is eternal, but the religion of Judaism. Pieces of the Gospel can't be stitched in to any other religious system. That's how narrow we are. Jesus said that. Narrow is the way. Do you feel like you are part of just a few people, when I say few, Christianity as compared to millions of others who are involved in other religions, feel like, oh, it puts us out here in the narrow, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. How about the wine? What about that parable? No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will be burst, the skins and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. When they got the new wine that came out of the, the, the grapes, grapes are crushed, and the wine is yielded out in the vats, and they'd pour those into the skin, and a lot of times it'd be a goat skin. You know, those the goat skin, and it would leave literally leaving it intact, the goat skin, as they had skinned the animal. And they'd sew up that skin, and then they would put in the wine. They would fill it up with the wine. Now, what what happens is that that wine then can expand, and it expands and expands. And if you have an old wine skin, it, it you know what does leather do? It can crack, right? It, it's uh, it's not going to be so um, leathery soft, and so therefore we have to put it in a new leather, a new soft kind of pouch to put it in. It's, a, it's another skin that you'd put that in. And, and so therefore, when that wine would expand in there, that soft leather also expands too. That's the idea. They knew that. He says if you take this new wine, you put it in the old cracked, brittle, stiff wine skins, the expansion process starts, you burst the skins. Now that old wine skin is useless and the wine has been spilled out. 
doesn't work that way. You know what he's saying? You can't put the gospel into another religion. It sounds a lot like you can't patch the gospel into Judaism. You can't put the gospel into another religion. You can't mix and match. There are Christians that are mixing and matching and meeting with Muslims now. And so they have their own kind of church. How could you do that? You can't. Well, Dennis, that sounds awful unloving. Well, it sounds scriptural. It sounds biblical. Jesus is the only way. You can't put what we believe into a religious system. You can't put this into a sacramental Romish system. All the sacraments that are done, all the different ceremonies are in there, and you cannot put true Christianity into that system. You can't drop it in the middle of a works righteousness system, an orthodox system. You can't drop it into liberalism. You can't drop it into some kind of neo-orthodoxy. You certainly can't drop it into a cult. All of those would be wrong. You can't do that. You take the Gospel and if you put any works in with it, it doesn't work. That's two of them. Here's the third one, our last one. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, 39, and no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And he said, what? What? I don't understand that. It sounds like this, is this a positive thing? And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. He's, he's, what is he saying? No, you don't want that new wine. You want, you want the old wine. Actually, what he is illustrating here is a sad thing. The person who is used to that old stuff does not desire the new, but he'll be content with the old. The Pharisees were content with the old system. They would resist Jesus here Next time we get together, we'll see it. It'll just go right on through the book of Luke, right on through the apostolic time period, right on up to today where we're at. There are people who have their traditions and they really will not come to what is the new covenant. They don't want the new covenant. It's like he's saying, you've been drinking that old wine of Judaism so long, you have absolutely no interest in the Gospel. He was giving it to them. It's really true. People who have been religious for a long time are very comfortable. And it's hard to bring them out of that system. But God, and His power through the Spirit, has done that done that with many people. We've seen it. We we've, know we've them. People here have come from those kind of systems. But people cultivate their taste and they're not going to be changed. As a matter of fact, if you say something about something is not biblical to them, it will be an attack on them and they get very defensive. I don't want to get people defensive. I want to be careful how I say my words. But eventually... 
the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ will offend people if you get to the truth of how they're really saved. If you tell them just by saying prayers and taking some kind of communion, some kind of piece of bread that represents Jesus or is Jesus, that doesn't make you a Christian, you'll probably uh, get... Well, you've probably made an enemy. Hopefully not. Pharisees, scribes, they're self-satisfied. They're comfortable where they're at. They love it. Because people adore them. People look up to them and praise them because of the position they're in, the money that they made. They're in a great position. Thank You, Lord, for making me so righteous. That man over there, I'm glad You didn't make me like him, that unrighteous man over there. Right? He said... They were satisfied where they were at. They'd grown comfortable. They were not interested in the Gospel. No matter how much somebody can point the way of delight, the way of pleasure, true pleasure in Christ, the Judaism of Jesus' time was so satisfying. It was an old wine... They didn't want to do anything with the new. They brought up this question, what happens to them? They don't listen to Jesus. They continue in their way. They follow Him to get Him caught in another one. What about the Sabbath then? Let's go for that one. Well, eventually they saw to it that He'd be executed. That's sad. And they're sinful what they did. They certainly aren't going to take the cup of the new covenant. Luke 22.20 talks about that. What they're content with is a damning system of false religion. That's what they were doing. They were damning people, sending them to hell. You know, in, 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 that, in the sense that they were giving them uh, false truths, as they said, as they would read from the Bible. So what do we do? What do we do with this? We probably are not involved in Pharisaism, legalism, could be. The things such as this is. But when we have a lost person that we're concerned about, do we tell them that everything is okay? And just kind of put in the Gospel as a patch in with what they already have. What they already believe. Just kind of mix it in. Do we tell them that it's okay? They're alright. They don't trust in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Is it okay to say you're alright and dump some of the Gospel a little bit in their old wineskins? Is that okay to do? We can't do that, can we? No. Beloved, we have to preach the Gospel. The Gospel stands alone. The Gospel of grace, of the glory of God. That is what we are to give. As we go out of here, think about that as we uh, get an opportunity to give them truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the truth that Jesus gave as He ripped away all blinders about false religious systems 
and even systems that we bring up in our own mind, even as Christians, that we can have some of those roadblocks. And Lord, take those roadblocks. Take the idols away from us because they do the same thing. They take our attention away from You. Take away those things that come in front. Because we make a new religion in our own hearts even though we are true believers in You. We have our idolatry. And so Lord, we want You to move in our hearts to be softened more and more and being like, as You said, being like the bride who is made ready, who is being made ready, who is going to be adorned with holiness and beauty. And even right now, Lord, You are doing that work in us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. May we yield to that. And as we continue today in our worship of You in our communion, we give You all praise and glory. Amen. Jesus had uh, great joy as He spread truth here. Of course, He mourned for people's sin too and the results of sin as it brings out the worst that man can be. He shows truth how we can be delivered from it. As He was with the disciples, He had one last meal with them before He was crucified. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, He broke it, gave the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. When He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And I say to you, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. So we get to rehearse it, practice it here. One day we'll be at that great wedding feast and here in tremendous joy will be Jesus. He said new wine. The new wine. He said new wine. That's right. New wine. New covenant. Everything is new. It's being made new. So what we get to do is commemorate what He did. And then... We get to proclaim the Gospel even in partaking of this. All who are believers, all who have trusted in Christ, His sacrifice for your sins, your sins are forgiven. We invite to the table. We take it as a great privilege to do that with our other brothers and sisters in Christ.
can you take us to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's a great pleasure to commune with you, to draw close to you, to seek your face, to think on the things of uh, our Lord Jesus and his ministry while he was here in the world and also, Lord, be comforted to know that He sits at Your right side, Father, uh, interceding for His people day and night. And uh, Lord, uh, in in obedience to His commands and what He had set up for the church for all time. Take this communion, Lord, in honor of Christ's death as we remember that. We remember His suffering, His passion going toward the cross and the actual death and shedding of His blood for sins. As He took the sins of the world on Himself showed us that He was the only way and that He was the Savior of the world. And so, Lord, by taking this communion, we bless Your name and we give You honor. We uh, think of our own failings and sins. We uh, silently confess those for you, Lord, because we know that without you making us clean, we can't be clean at all. And, uh, so we thank you, Lord, that you have given us eternal life and that we remember you now until you come in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus said, take uh, this bread that uh, represented him his body. took the third cup, cup of redemption. We were redeemed by His blood. This represents shedding the blood. It represents what He did for forgiveness of our sins. We've been set free from bondage. Freedom of Christ. Take, drink the cup. Well, it certainly has been a glorious day. Thank you for allowing me to be part of worship with you guys. Special joy. Uh, by the way, um, we have 
guests back here today. Certainly a joy to have you guys. We enjoyed having you worshiping with us. And uh, before you go, you guys want to go and introduce yourselves to them. And remember all their names. I think there are four kids there. And um, of course the ones who had five just had their fifth one. That's Zach. He will be uh, preaching a message as he does every year uh, around California, kind of north up there. They do that. And, uh, it's in an old, old building that's used once a year. They don't have air conditioning there. So <laughs> that would be exciting. Uh, Rebecca was saying that she would be glad if they just kind of met underneath uh, a shade tree outside. <laughs> But uh, tomorrow, what's the story there? One o'clock tomorrow. Barbecue. What else? So what are we are supposed to do? Just bring whatever you like. Bring uh, your favorite dish and an appetite. <laughs> okay. And your bathing suits. We just got to pull up. Yeah. It's going to be uh, a little bit warm here, probably.
delayed is getting as tall as you are. It's getting hard to tell you guys apart. Man. I know everybody thinks we're twins. Yeah, it's like used to there used to be a height that is like, like oh, okay, what's Elena? What are you, Benny? We're over tall, right? <laughs>